This is Site 2. Coming up... UK braced for Russian retaliation as Western powers close ranks. This article by Michael Settle. Jeremy Corbyn. UK should do business with Putin and challenge him on human rights. Female politicians reveal scale of abuse received on Twitter. Herald View. Fishing deal highlights weakness of UK's Brexit position. Alison Rowett, telling the difference between free speech and hate is no joke. Obviously, this is really bad. Chris Stolen admits pressure is on Partick Thistle, but warns against pushing panic button. Susan Egelstaff, changes to men's tennis must be more drastic than planned. Walter Smith, Scotland job was the only one I would have come out of retirement for. Six Nations Rugby. Italy 27, Scotland 29. This article from the Herald on Friday the 16th of March 2018. Politics. UK braced for Russian retaliation as Western powers close ranks. This article by Michael Settle. Theresa May is bracing herself for Russian retaliation after she received a major diplomatic boost when America, France and Germany joined forces with Britain to blame Moscow directly for the Salisbury chemical attack. The four allies said it was an assault on UK sovereignty and a breach of international law that threatens the security of us all. But Jeremy Corbyn continued to be reluctant to place the blame firmly with the Kremlin, saying the evidence appears to show Russia was behind the attack, which the Labour leader suggested might have been carried out by mafia-like groups. Earlier, the Prime Minister visited the scene of the attack on the former Russian spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia. To thank the emergency services for their professionalism and the people of Salisbury, for their incredible patience. Mrs May spoke to the first policeman who attended the incident, Detective Sergeant Nick Bailey, at the local hospital, where he is being treated for exposure to the nerve agent. Number 10 declined to give details of what they described as a private conversation. In the medieval city's guild hall, she met police officers Alex Way and Alex Collins, who were the first to respond to the emergency call. Mr Collins said... It was a routine call, two people on a bench slumped over, which is nothing out of the ordinary. Mrs May replied, You had no idea what you were dealing with. Thank you. What you did was what police do day in and day out. A routine call, and you don't know what's there. You did a great job. Clearly buoyed by the show of solidarity from Western allies, at one point the PM engaged in a fist bump with a member of the public during a walkabout, she said, what is important in the international arena, and we have taken this into NATO, the United Nations, through into the European Union, is that allies are standing alongside us and saying this is part of a pattern of activity that we have seen from Russia in their interference, their disruption, that they have perpetrated across a number of countries in Europe. This happened in the UK, but it could have happened anywhere, and we take a united stand against it, declared Mrs May. After his first keynote speech as Defence Secretary, Gavin Williamson accused the Kremlin of atrocious and outrageous behaviour, adding, 
Frankly, Russia should go away and should shut up. Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary, confirmed the UK would submit a sample of the NERD agent to the organisation for prohibition of chemical weapons for it to carry out its own tests. In Moscow, Vladimir Putin met with his security chiefs to plan Russia's response. Sergei Lavrov, the Foreign Minister, told reporters a response to the UK's actions, which includes the expulsion of 23 Russian diplomats, would receive a response very soon, I promise you. In their joint statement, Mrs May, US President Donald Trump, France's Emmanuel Macron and Germany's Angela Merkel said they abhorred the poison attack and shared the assessment that there was no plausible alternative explanation other than Russia being responsible. The leaders of the Quad, as it was quickly termed, called on Moscow to answer all questions about the Salisbury incident and live up to its responsibilities as a member of the UN Security Council to uphold international peace and security. They went on. This use of a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia constitutes the first offensive use of a nerve agent in Europe since the Second World War. It is an assault on UK sovereignty and any such use by a state party is a clear violation of the Chemical Weapons Convention and a breach of international law. It threatens the security of us all. In Brussels, the NATO states were briefed by Sir Mark Sedwell, the UK National Security Advisor, at a meeting of the North Atlantic Council. Jens Stoltenberg, the Military Alliance Secretary-General, said the attack took place against the backdrop of a reckless pattern of Russian behaviour. He stressed, We do not want a new Cold War and we do not want to be dragged into a new arms race. But let there be no doubt, NATO will defend all allies against any threat. In Washington, Mr Trump told reporters in the White House, It certainly looks like the Russians were behind it. We are taking it very seriously. His words came as the US administration enforced its toughest measures yet against Moscow, imposing sanctions against five groups and 19 individuals, accusing them of staging a series of cyber attacks on America's nuclear, aviation and energy infrastructure. Meanwhile at home, Mr Corbyn, under fire from Tory and Labour MPs over his quizzical response to the Conservative government's approach, warned against adopting a McCarthyite intolerance of dissent, urging the PM not to rush way ahead of the evidence. But his critics continued to vent their anger at his stance, with Tory backbencher Peter Bone brandishing him an apologist for Russia. This article by Michael Settle. Jeremy Corbyn, UK should do business with Putin and challenge him on human rights. An article published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 20th of March 2018. Jeremy Corbyn has said he would still do business with Russia despite all fingers pointing towards the country being responsible for the Salisbury spy incident. The Labour leader has been forced to defend his stance on the attack after declining to categorically blame the Kremlin for the poisoning of Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia on March the 4th. 
Mr. Corbyn's earlier warning not to rush ahead of the evidence led to criticism from Conservatives and some Labour backbenchers. However, he reiterated his call for Russia to be sent samples of the nerve agent to discover its source. He told Radio 4's World at One, All fingers point towards Russia's involvement in this and obviously the manufacture of the material was undertaken by the Russian state originally. What I'm saying is the weapons were made from Russia clearly. I think Russia has to be held responsible for it, but there has to be an absolutely definitive answer to the question where did the nerve agent come from? I asked the Russians to be given a sample so that they can say categorically one way or the other. Mr Skripal, a former double agent, and his daughter are still fighting for their lives after being exposed to Novichok in the Wiltshire city. Shadow Chancellor John MacDonald has previously said Labour agreed with Theresa May that Russia was responsible for the attack. But Mr Corbyn maintained there had to be a relationship with Russia and said he would still do business with President Vladimir Putin if Labour came into power. I would do business with Putin, sure, and I'd challenge him on human rights in Russia, challenge him on these issues and challenge him on that whole basis of that relationship, he told the BBC. On Monday, Mrs May hit back at Mr Putin's dismissal of the British government's claim that Russia was responsible for the attack. Her comments followed strong words from Boris Johnson, who accused Russia of trying to conceal the needle of truth in a haystack of lies over the case after Mr Putin dismissed the idea of Russian responsibility as nonsense. Writing in the Daily Telegraph, the Foreign Secretary said the use of a nerve agent against Discrepals was very deliberate. As Ken Clark pointed out in Parliament last week, the obvious Russianness of the weapon was designed to send a signal to anyone pondering dissent amid the intensifying repression of Mr Putin's Russia, he wrote. The message is clear. We will hunt you down, we will find you and we will kill you. And though we will scornfully deny our guilt, the world will know that Russia did it. Mr Corbyn's interview with Radio 4's World at One will be broadcast on Tuesday. From the Herald Scotland, published on the 21st of March 2018. Female politicians reveal scale of abuse received on Twitter. Former Scottish Labour leader Kezair Dugdale has revealed she received three death threats in six years as she backed a campaign urging Twitter to do more to stop online abuse. Ms Dugdale joined Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, and Scottish Conservative leader, Ruth Davidson, to reveal the extent of the hate-filled invective hurled at female politicians using the platform. The three politicians are supporting Amnesty's toxic Twitter campaign, challenging the social media giant to take steps to address the problem. A YouGov survey of 1,110 British women commissioned by the charity found only 9% thought Twitter was doing enough to stop violence and abuse against women. Miss Dugdale revealed she had gone to the police a few years ago after one user suggested she should be bayoneted. She said, if I were to show you my Twitter reply column just now, 90% of it would be abuse. Now I have to look at that every time to scroll through the good stuff, trying to find those people who are genuinely trying to engage. 
probably 10 or 20 times a day, I'm scrolling through absolute mountains of abuse. There's different levels of abuse and harassment within that spectrum, some of it very serious indeed. Three times in the last six years I've been an elected politician, I've felt it serious enough to, re to report to the police. That's involved three death threats in six years. Miss Davidson said the volume of abuse sometimes made her feel hunted online. She said, because I'm openly gay, particularly when I started, there was a lot of homophobic abuse, and I have a lot of young gay followers on my Twitter platform, and for me it's always been quite important to call that out. So, all of you fat, ugly, stinking Tory stuff, I leave to one side, but every now and again, every month or so, I'll retweet or push back on some of the homophobic abuse, because I think it's important that people see actually that that sort of language is not acceptable. You don't have to take it. Miss Sturgeon said that while social media was by and large a real force for good, she was deeply worried about the impact of online abuse on prospective female politicians. She said there's undoubtedly a gender element to the abuse. Women in politics will, mu will be much more likely to get abuse about how they look, what they wear, and that's probably, to be frank, at the more innocent end of it. What makes me angry when I read that kind of abuse about me is that I worry that it's putting the next generation of young women off politics. I feel a responsibility to challenge it. Amnesty interviewed more than 80 women across the UK and US for its toxic Twitter report, with many reporting the company had failed to act when abuse was reported. Kate Nevins, Amnesty's International Scotland Programme Director, said Twitter has become a toxic place for women, where appalling abuse language and graphic threats of violence appear unchecked on their platform every day. Abusive trolls are empowered to continue their campaigns of violence and abuse against women online because despite repeated promises, Twitter is failing to do enough to stop them. In fact, Twitter is silencing the voices of women and is having a damaging impact on their mental health. Amnesty wants the company to improve its reporting mechanisms and share more information publicly about the nature and levels of violence and abuse against women and how it is dealt with. A spokesman for Twitter said, We agree with many of the recommendations contained in the Amnesty International report. A number of the proposals represent work already completed or underway at Twitter. Abuse and hateful conduct directed at women are prohibited on our platform. We've made more than 30 individual changes to our product, policies and operations in the past 16 months. We have increased our action rates tenfold. We've made significant changes to our reporting tools and continue to improve them as well as working to communicate more clearly with our users on reports and how we draft policy. We continue to expand our transparency report to include relevant and meaningful data. We have seen extraordinary engagement supporting women. The rise of movements like Me Too, Hashtag Women's March, Hashtag Positions of Strength are testimonies to the power of Twitter as a platform for women and their allies to share stories, offer support and advocate for change. Article from Herald Scotland, 20th of March 2018. Herald View. Fishing deal highlights weakness of UK's Brexit position. Of the 38% of people in Scotland who voted to leave the European Union in June 2016, some would undoubtedly have done so in support of the country's fishing industry, which has long been scathing of the European Union's Common Fisheries Policy, CFP. Speak to Scots fishermen, who land some 60% of the UK's catch, 
and many will lay the blame for the decline of their industry at the door of the CFP, which sets catch quotas and gives other EU nations access to UK waters. Others, to be fair, would say decades of overfishing led to the slump. Regardless, fishermen put their faith in Brexit, believing withdrawal from the CFP in March 2019 would give them back control of fishing stocks. Only last week, Ruth Davidson, leader of the Scottish Conservatives, and UK Environment Secretary Michael Gove issued a joint statement calling for Britain to leave the CFP immediately upon leaving the EU in March 2019. You can well understand then why so many in the industry feel betrayed following yesterday's deal that means fishing arrangements will continue to be negotiated by the EU during the two-year Brexit transition period. The deal part of a much wider transition agreement negotiated by Brexit Secretary David Davis and EU Chief Michel Barnier, means the UK will be consulted during the transition, but Brussels will continue to set quotas. The Scottish Fishermen's Federation said the situation fell far short of an acceptable deal, adding that the industry does not trust the EU to look after its interests. The language used by the body was noticeably strong, with leader Bertie Armstrong warning the EU of severe consequences if care was not taken over Scottish interests. He also demanded cast-iron guarantees that sovereignty will mean sovereignty after the end of the transition period. This deal is undoubtedly another blow to an industry still only tentatively recovering following the collapse in North Sea cod and haddock stocks, and it leaves a particularly bad taste in the mouth considering fishermen were promised so much by Brexiters in the lead-up to the referendum. But it's not also particularly difficult to understand how and why Mr Davis may have found himself giving away fishing rights. After all, fishing was one of the few significant bargaining chips available to him during the transition negotiations, which had been rumbling on uncomfortably for months. And with the EU making it clear it would not even begin to discuss trade agreements before this stage was complete, Mr Davis, not to mention his boss, Theresa May, was desperate to sign off. This development may seem insignificant in the grand scheme of Brexit when compared to issues such as the Irish border, but it could yet have ramifications, depending on how far the Scottish Conservatives are willing to go in their opposition. Yesterday, Ms Davidson said she would not support any Brexit deal that failed to deliver full control over fishing. She has 13 MPs at Westminster, and since Mrs May's majority is also 13, they have a key role in getting government business through. The under-pressure PM obviously calculated that they will not bring down Brexit legislation and her government over this matter, but that could turn out to be a risky strategy. Ms Davidson, meanwhile, is also in a tricky spot, having left herself open to accusations of weakness and failing to look out for Scotland's interests in the Brexit process. Perhaps more than anything, however, this episode highlights just how weak the UK's negotiating position truly is. Scottish fishermen are unlikely to be the last industry shouting sell-out before the Brexit process reaches its conclusion. Remember... You no longer need to receive a weekly digest service on tape, but can access more daily content via our website, www.qandreview.com forward slash free podcasts, accessible via your computer, tablet or mobile device.
The Herald Scotland, Thursday, 22nd March 2018. Alison Rowett. Telling the difference between free speech and hate is no joke, but Alison Rowett, senior politics and features writer. It does not happen often, but some days I wonder if Scotland exists to fill a column in some tiny local newspaper in America's Midwest. Picture it, an editorial meeting in the back of Beyond Sentinel. The editor and his vast staff of two are discussing the column titled Those Crazy Jocks. The slot began life after a writer, no one remembers who, went on holiday to Scotland and came back raving about its beauty, the warmth of the welcome, etc., but also about the particular kinds of madness to be found there. In years to come, such behaviour would be labelled BAM culture by experts, but no one knew that yet. So began the light-hearted column. But now, questions were being asked. Face it, guys, says the editor, we'll never stop the deep-fried Mars bar story or the time half a city got stuck in a motorway for days because of the snow. Those pictures of Fran and Anna? Classic. But it's been so quiet and sensible lately, with the Parliament and all. I hate to say it, but maybe those crazy jocks column has had its day. Chief interrupts the cub reporter. Email just in. Some guy in Scotland has trained his dog to give a Nazi salute. The editor looks stunned for a moment before bellowing, print it, tweet it, we're going viral with this one. God bless America and God bless those crazy jocks. The back of Beyond Sentinel will hopefully hear in time that the story has now moved on. On Tuesday, Mark Meakin, 30, from Coatbridge, Lanarkshire, was found guilty of hate crime for posting a video on YouTube of his girlfriend's pug raising its paw while he prompted it to do so with cues of gas the Jews and Sieg Heil. Meakin denied any wrongdoing, said he had made the video as a joke to annoy his girlfriend and had never intended it to be viewed widely. Now, here in Scotland, one would imagine the reaction of most people to this case would be to say what a complete and utter, insert own expletive here, what on earth was he thinking, and then move on. But what do we know? Meakin's case is now being taken up as the latest outrage against freedom of speech, and he's receiving support from within Scotland, see newspaper comment threads, and out with the country. The comedian Ricky Gervais, who had 13 million followers on Twitter, said if you don't believe in a person's right to say things that you might find grossly offensive, then you don't believe in freedom of speech. It seems hardly a week goes by without someone exercising their right to freedom of speech to proclaim that their freedom of speech is in peril. Oh, the irony. According to this view, no one can make a joke or take a joke anymore. People are afraid to say what they think for fear of being attacked on social media, sacked from their job or ending up in court like the court bridge one. The thought police are everywhere, haven't you heard? Why, you can't even wolf whistle at a woman anymore. We've become too thin-skinned, too ready to take offence, too snowflake for our own good. The arguments even reach into the realm of international politics, with some holding that one of the reasons Donald Trump was elected was that he stood for freedom of speech against those who would place a limit on it. On and on the complaints go until someone utters the phrase political correctness gone mad and the rant can officially end, only to be picked up again next time, usually when a celebrity or politician dares to criticise the messages of hate and threats of violence they receive on social media. Yesterday, 
FM Nicola Sturgeon, Scottish Conservative leader Ruth Davidson and former Labour leader Kezia Dugdale did just that, speaking out in support of an Amnesty International call for Twitter to get a grip on abusive messages. How awful it must be for freedom of speech fighters to live in such Orwellian times. Spare a thought, if you can, for former English Defence League leader Tommy Robinson, who felt so strongly that Meakin was a victim of our PC times that he travelled to Airdrie Sheriff Court to lend his support. This is the intelligence services, this is the government, this is the police, cracking down and silencing free speech on people who are not even allowed to tell jokes, said Mr Robinson. Not to be outdone, Macon said, there has been a miscarriage of justice. It is a very dark day in regards to freedom of speech. Usually a poop bag would be enough to take care of such views, but let us be reasonable and talk this out. If those speaking out in support of Macon had bothered to consider the case fully, they would have seen that the sheriff did what must always be done in matters of free speech. He balanced the right to freedom of expression with the obligation to act responsibly. Having considered the evidence, the sheriff ruled that the accused knew that the material was offensive and why it was offensive. Despite that, he made the video. It was viewed more than three million times, and this in turn drove traffic to other material he had posted. To put it in Gid Scott's nutshell, the accused was at it. As Salman Rushdie, among others, has said, nobody has the right not to be offended. Be a pillock if you like, but if what is being said or done appears to break the law, then others have a right to call foul and have a court decide who is right. Every democratic society operates according to rules. If a law freely made is broken, then there have to be consequences. Consequences, moreover, decided upon by that same society. That is how law is upheld. If you don't like the law, campaign to change it. Don't be a crybaby about it. Don't whine. Don't be a snowflake. We're not living in a new age where freedom of speech is under attack as never before. What is happening is that bullies, the ones who shout loudest, are no longer having things all their own way. They are being called to account for their views and they do not like it. Tough. This article from the Herald Scotland, Opinion, on the 21st of March 2018. Obviously this is really bad. This article by Letters. Reading the recent letters from Mark Boyle and John McNabb regarding bad grammar, I found myself laughing. I've been banging on for years about four such words which are used constantly, namely, hopefully, obviously, basically, and actually. Sometimes two of them are used in the same sentence or worse, side by side. A young footballer on TV once used hopefully, obviously, blah blah on other occasions. I find myself shouting at the TV when someone keeps saying obviously over and over. It might obvious to you, mate, but not to us. The latest one to surface is the adverb really, usually used to describe something hot or huge, or insert your own word here, as in really hot or really huge. Compound this with repeating it endlessly as really, 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 really uncomfortable. Okay, we believe you, it was uncomfortable. TV presenters are the worst for this. I obviously must stop actually shouting at the TV. Ian MacDonald, 2, Stuart Hill Drive. Mary Dingwall. In response to Kate Gordon's pronounced disagreements March the 19th, I can put forward no justification for the annoying examples described. The reasons are probably the same ones that cause contestants on TV game shows 
to applaud themselves when they get an answer correct. To pronounce the letter H as H, or for the hosts to talk about the contestant with the most points when they are only two contestants, or less when they mean fewer points. Brian Johnston, 3A Charlotte Avenue, Torrance. This article was attributed to letters. Chris Stolen admits pressure is on Partick Thistle, but warns against pushing panic button. An article by Graham McGarry, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 20th of March 2018. Chris Doolan admits that the pressure is mounting on Partick Thistle as the inquest begins over their desperately disappointing weekend defeat to Hearts at Tynecastle. The striker says that it is time for some frank discussions and some home truths to be laid out within the walls of the Firhill dressing room as they try to turn around a horror run of form that has seen them slip to second bottom of the Premiership just three points ahead of Ross County. But Doolan believes it is equally important for the Jags not to press the panic button and get back to doing the things that had them looking forward to competing in the top six just a little over a year ago. It was a big disappointment on Saturday, and it was a game we felt we could have got some points from, Doolan said. To lose so cheaply makes it even tougher. Hearts didn't have to work too hard to get their goals and to get three points. We need to look at what is going wrong. We can't gloss over it. We have to rectify things, and it makes the games coming up even bigger now. It has been so tough, and we have made things tougher for ourselves. Week after week, it seems to be that we are heaping more pressure on ourselves. This time last year, we were playing good football. We were passing the ball, we were moving it, scoring goals and creating chances because people were feeling happy, comfortable and relaxed. With the pressure now mounting a little, we can't allow that to affect us. We have to be able to think clearly. It's too easy to get carried away and press the panic button. We have to keep our heads. You have to be able to think clearly when you're on the pitch. We still have to be able to take the ball and pass it. We can't just resort to lumping it away because ultimately it's just coming straight back at us. It's the premiership. Teams will punish you. If they have more of the ball, they are going to punish us. It's been happening the majority of the season and we're at the stage of the season where it just can't keep happening. We need to put a stop to it. I'm sure the manager will be working as hard as he can to rectify that. Dolan is looking to make the most of the two-week hiatus that Thistle now have before they travel to face Hibs and he is determined to do more than simply stew on their abject display at Tynecastle. It's not ideal that we've got two weeks in between because sometimes it's better to just get back out there and have another game, he said. On the flip side of that, it now gives us a couple of weeks to work on things and get things out in the open and have a chat about it. It's getting to that stage where we do have to have a bit more about us to not allow ourselves to fall out of games straight away. We have to be a lot cleverer in how we approach games and the way we manage games as well. We have a good team spirit and that definitely won't change because we've got boys in there who will make sure we stick together. We're a club. 
we win together and we lose together. That's the way it is. I don't think it was a case of pointing fingers at individuals, but as a team, as players, we have to stand up. From back to front, there were mistakes made all over the place, so it's not about pointing fingers at each other, but we can't just gloss over things either. We do have to sit down as a team and rectify things as a team. That's the way to approach it. We can't single people out. We must do more as a team. The Herald Scotland. On Friday, the 16th of March, 2018. Sports section. Susan Egelstaff. Changes to men's tennis must be more drastic than planned. This article by sports columnist Susan Egelstaff. The announcement earlier this week that the ITF are planning for a World Cup of tennis came hot on the heels of last month's revelation that the Davis Cup is to be revamped. Currently, the Davis Cup is something of a hit-or-miss competition. In recent years, the majority of the world's best players have given the team event a body swerve, with the winners often being whichever nation turns out to be the best of a bad lot, rather than the best country in the world. A change was certainly needed. If the Davis Cup had continued as it was, sooner or later it was going to die. So, last month, the International Tennis Federation, ITF, revealed plans to scrap the current Davis Cup format, which sees countries play either home or away several times a year, depending on how far they progress. The new plans, however, will see the competition, which is expected to begin next year if everything is approved, be turned into an 18-nation World Cup of Tennis Finals, where the nations will battle it out over the course of a week, with the country coming out on top being crowned world champions. But just a few days ago, it was revealed that the ATP are also planning on adding a new tournament, which would be very similar to the ITF World Cup of Tennis, with the ATP hoping for their event to begin in 2020. The idea to refresh the Davis Cup format is a welcome one, but already, before things have even been finalised, it's gone too far. The ITF and the ATP are now in something of a war of egos as to who gets their tournament in the calendar. But the issue is that there's scarce room in the tennis schedule for one new tournament, never mind two. Already there's been talk that both the ITF and the ATP will not be kept happy, that only one of the bodies will see their tournament ultimately come to fruition. Jamie Murray, a member of the ATP Player Council since 2016, said there is no room for both events in the schedule. No, it's not going to happen, he told the BBC. I think it's kind of a race against time now to see who can officially announce it. Tennis is close to breaking point already in terms of the fullness of the schedule. As things stand, the men's tour finishes in mid-November with the ATP Tour finals and begins again before the new year, giving the top male players only a month off. The calendar is already jam-packed full, which is why so many of the top players already choose to skip the Davis Cup. The idea behind switching the Davis Cup from a multi-week event throughout the year to a one-week event is that the top players are more likely to commit one week of their schedule rather than a number of weekends, and the travelling that that entails, to their diaries. This in itself is understandable, but if this change is made, the entire essence of the Davis Cup is lost. The Davis Cup is made special by the home crowds, which are often far more raucous than they are at week-to-week tournaments, would be lost entirely. The Davis Cup is, for many, their only chance to see world-class tennis, and by changing to a one-week event, many, many fans will be deprived of seeing top-class play. But in fact, the bigger issue is that those in charge of tennis appear not to have what's best for the game and the players at the forefront of their minds. As it stands, a significant amount of the world's best male players are carrying injuries, a number of which are so serious it remains questionable whether or not they will ever return to their best. 
Many, if not most, of these injuries are as a result of playing week in, week out. The battering these top players' bodies take as a result of their treatment and travelling schedule is considerable, and if the calendar is not amended and made lighter, the game will suffer significantly as the top players will be out of action more and more regularly. Removing a few Davis Cup weekends and replacing them with a one-week event will, in the grand scheme of things, make very little difference. If men's tennis is to be improved, a few tweaks to the Davis Cup format will not make a jot of difference. This article was by sports columnist Susan Egelstaff. From the Herald, Scotland, on the 21st of March, Walter Smith, Scotland job was the only one I would have come out of retirement for. This is by Christopher Jack, the group's senior sports writer. Walter Smith admits the Scotland job was the only one he would have considered coming out of retirement for after turning down the chance to return to Hamden. The 70-year-old was approached by the Scottish FA last month as they continued to their search for Gordon Strachan's successor following Michael O'Neill's call to remain with Northern Ireland. But he ruled himself out of the running before the SFA turned to Alex McLeish and he clinched his return to the national side. Smith has not been in the dugout since he left Rangers seven years ago and has no regrets over his decision to remain in retirement. He said... First and foremost, I would like to clarify that I really wasn't asked to take the job. I was asked if I would come out of retirement and in the end I decided not to bother, as you know. That meant Alex got the job and he maybe should have had the job in the first place anyway because he has the credentials from his run in charge the last time. Yes, I am comfortable with the decision. I was not looking at the time for a job. I was asked if it was a job I would consider doing. But I never got to the stage where I sat down and talked to them any further on that. After two or three days of media coverage, to be quite honest, I was ticked off. Smith spent three years in charge of Scotland and almost led the nation to the World Cup in 2006 before he returned to Ibrox for a successful second spell at the helm. He will be back in familiar territory this weekend as he oversees a team of former light blues heroes in a charity match. But there will be no return to full-time management for the Gers legend after a glory-laden career that ensured his place in Scottish football folklore. Smith said, the hassle would never bother me, or I don't think it would bother me these days, but I don't know, because it's been a long time since I've had a great deal of hassle, except from the missus. But it was something where somebody asked you, and if you've done the job before, there are bits of it you miss. Some of it you don't miss, but there are bits of it you miss. So when somebody asks you if you consider coming out of retirement, you think about it, you toss it over. I did that for a couple of days and decided not to bother. I'm coming out of retirement for the Legends game on Saturday for the first time in a while. I'm categorically finished, done. That was the only one I would have considered. The Herald, Monday, March 19th. Six Nations Rugby, Italy 27, Scotland 29. Stuart Fisher, Chief Sports Writer, reports, Townsend, I am somewhat satisfied. Typically, Gregor Townsend selected his words with care when it came to the question of his satisfaction or otherwise with his maiden Six Nations campaign as Scotland coach. Having racked up three championship wins for the second successive year, one of them an historic triumph against England, it ended with the Scots sitting third in the table. On the other hand, as evidenced by the setbacks in Cardiff Dublin and a fraught hour in Rome. Winning away from home in this competition clearly remains a challenge. 
I am somewhat satisfied, said Townsend, a form of words in some ways akin to Kenny Douglas's legendary Mibby's I, Mibby's No. There will always be things to improve. The England performance was a great performance and a great win because of what it means for the country, he added. But having watched it a few times, I know we could have been better, and that was probably our best performance. We demand a lot of our players. We know they can deliver, and it is about doing that over 80 minutes and also away from home against different opposition. That's the challenge we have. At least there is some context when it comes to Scotland's away day misadventures. The the 15 matches in this year's tournament furnished only four away wins. This is a brilliant championship, said Townsend. The standard of rugby has gone up over the past few years. It is very hard to win away from home. Remember, Italy had a try disallowed and could have been two points behind England after 55 minutes, so they were in that game as well. So we are pleased we won on Saturday. Three wins is a big achievement, but we are not pleased with how we played against Wales and with not taking chances against Ireland or our first-half performance against Italy. Nothing's ever perfect, and we understand there will be times when we don't play as well, and we have to find a way to get better, find a way to win. That's what we did against Italy. One thing Townsend is unambiguous about is the pleasure and honour he has derived from having this job, the 44-year-old having justified the faith shown in him when stepping up from Glasgow Warriors to replace Vernon Cotter after last year's championship. Said Townsend, I've loved it. I loved the summer experience, playing away in new places, the atmosphere at Murrayfield in our home games. When we got the bus to the game on Saturday, we stopped at traffic lights and were right in the middle of the Doddy Gump march in aid of the Doddy Weir Foundation's charity efforts for motor neuron disease, where there looked to be 10,000 supporters. It's a brilliant environment to be in. We feel very privileged to be in the roles we are in as coaches, but we know a lot of work has to go in over the next 18 months the next 12 months to have a better championship and then 18 months to have a good World Cup. As much as Scotland crave a maiden Six Nations title for its own sake, it is only natural if thoughts are turning ever more towards that 2019 showpiece in Japan and a World Cup pool which holds the daunting prospect of a rematch with Grand Slam champions Ireland and an intriguing meeting with the host nation. With one eye on that showpiece, the next challenge is keeping the momentum going in the three months before Scotland's next match. That comes in Canada on June 8th, the first leg of a tour, which also includes USA and Argentina. The coach has a lot to weigh up when it comes to that selection too, deciding how much fresh blood it is prudent to inject into the squad and whether those involved in the Lions tour last summer might benefit from a break, whether they want it or not.
said Townsend. The summer tour will be one that we will look at as a way to keep improving, but also to introduce new players to the rugby we aspire to play, players who could have a chance of making the World Cup squad in a year's time. We will see what the next two months brings. We are conscious we had two or three guys on the Lions tour, so it would be a long season to go from that to a summer tour at the end of it. Some players might need some medical care at the end of the season or surgery so they can have a full season afterwards. But we are also conscious of the momentum we want to carry on. We want to make sure we have a strong squad to take on Canada, the USA and particularly Argentina in the third game. It will be a balance. Not everyone out there on Saturday will go on tour. We are not going to take more than 30 players to Argentina. The squad will be bigger to go to Canada and America, and then the numbers will drop from high 30s to high 20s, which allows the players to have one more week of pre-season with their clubs. Fortunately, most of our players will be involved in big games. Glasgow are guaranteed a Pro 14 semi-final, possibly a home semi, and Edinburgh are in the European quarter-finals and look more and more likely to get a play-off place. That's great. It means the players we have from Edinburgh and Glasgow will be playing in big games. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Herald Scotland. This weekly Talking Newspaper Digest was a Q&Review recording service production. The readers were volunteers at Q&Review and the producer was Jay Kidd. Q&Review Recording Service Limited is a registered Scottish charity. Number SC018016. Our registered office is at 18 Crowhill Road, Bishop Briggs, Glasgow, G641QY. Remember, you can always get in contact with us by email at information at qandreview.com or by leaving us a message on our answering service at 0141-772-3976. Remember to return your cassette in the wallet provided. Just flip over the address label and post it back to us.